Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at the thought of Jacques Ellul with Dr. David Gill, president of the International Society of Jacques Ellul. Dr. Gill, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Dennis. So first, a brief on Ellul. He was a French scholar and Christian anarchist, was born in 1912 and died in 1994. He was the longtime professor of history and the sociology of institutions at the University of Bordeaux. Though trained as a sociologist, he was also known as a philosopher and theologian and wrote over 50 books and close to 1,000 articles. His writings covered the relationship of religion and politics, technology's effect on society, and propaganda. So, Dr. Gill, let's uh, dive right in. First of all, let's look at his theology. Um, But to better understand his theology, what can you tell us about his relationship or involvement to the church? Was he heavily involved, or did he talk about theological and ecclesiological things from a a distance? No, he was very much involved uh, with the church. He was part of the French, the Reformed Church of France. Uh, You know, uh, France is at this stage, and for actually a couple hundred years, substantially secularized. Uh, So it's a small fraction of the French people who actually are engaged in in church. I'm not sure what the percentage is. But but then even of those Christians, the dominant church is the Catholic Church. So Protestantism is a very small minority. Uh, You know, there was a lot of persecution of of Protestants. The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and and the Huguenots, the Huguenots, you know, as we think about it. But a lot of that Protestantism was in southwestern France, where Bordeaux is. So there's a bit more of a Protestant uh, strength there. And then also up in the in the northeast, in Strasbourg, which is very close to Germany, that's where the, the biggest uh, Reformed theological faculty is, is the University of Strasbourg. There are a couple of, then there are evangelical uh, churches. So the, the Église Évangélique Libre, which means free church of France, but is not related uh, specifically to our evangelical free church in the U.S. But it's similar in the sense that we would consider them to be, uh, you know, evangelicals and the churches are, you know, believe in preaching the gospel and reaching out to others. The Reformed Church has uh, had a very liberal Protestant wing and a very conservative fundamentalist wing. Jacques Ellul has been in the middle, which is more associated with the work of Karl Barth, the great Swiss-German theologian, uh, in the sense that they they strongly believe in Jesus Christ and the miracles of Christ and the inspiration of Scripture, but they don't uh, they don't play to the most conservative things, like, for example, insisting that creation happened 4,000 years ago in six 24-hour days or something. They say, what, what is God trying to tell us about the nature of our humanity and, you know, this kind of thing? So so what is the Word of God? But I remember hearing Jacques Ellul say, it's not, uh, it's not uh, a lack of faith. It's not wrong to ask, were there three Isaiahs who contributed to the, you know, the book of Isaiah? Uh, but it is wrong to ask, did God write Isaiah? Because we do believe that God wrote Isaiah, and now the historical details, well, who knows. But anyway, so he was he was uh, raised in a, uh, by a, 
uh, I guess you'd say a, a skeptic or an atheistic father. Uh, he was an only child, but his mother was a uh, pious woman from a Dutch reformed kind of family, but she never went to church because of the relationship with her husband and kind of the, the culture of the time women submitted to their uh, author- authoritarian husbands in that sense. So she, she never went to church. Jacques Ellul did go to church and catechism when he was little, but it didn't really take, except that he, he had a phenomenal memory for a lot of things that he studied. But it was really in his late teens and his early college years, you know, 18, 19, 20, that he was converted. Partly he was convicted by reading Goethe's Faust, you know, about the great spiritual battle. But he also was converted by reading, reading Romans 8. And he says it just hit him like a ton of bricks. And, uh, and the Spirit of God just came into the room in a powerful way. He said he was so energized by this, he got on his bicycle and rode like mad because of the sense of God's presence and power. And so, mm. you know, reading the Bible on his own uh, was really kind of the, the conversion experience he had. So it's not surprising that he then associated with Christians in the Reformed tradition who really believed in Bible study and not just the tradition of, you know, the Catholic Church and this sort of thing. So, but anyway, then he was he was involved all of his life in the Reformed Church, and uh, he, he went to the University of Bordeaux and studied law all the way up through a PhD or a doctorate uh, in law, but he graduated right about the time in the 1930s where everything was getting very intense, and uh, then Hitler invaded, and uh, so his first university position, he was fired uh, by the Vichy government, the collaborationist government, because he refused to swear loyalty, and he was encouraging students to refuse to uh, do the Nazi salute and yield and all this uh, thing. So he was fired, and then he went into the countryside uh, and lived on a farm during the occupation and worked with the resistance, not uh, doing any violent acts, but uh, helping Jews to have fake IDs to protect their identity. So he, after World War II, was over in the 60s or 50s, he was actually given an award by the Jewish community in France as a, as a, uh, I can't remember what they called it, but like a friend of the Jews, a friend. Righteous of Gentile. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but anyway, so, but during the war, while France was occupied, the Strasbourg faculty was uh, was went down below the line of demarcation. So France was not all occupied. Almost all of it was occupied by Nazis. But there was a, a part in southwestern France, southern France, where the Nazis did not occupy it. And that's where the Protestant faculty was. So during those four years of the occupation, he actually traveled over and did, a, did the whole seminary curriculum but he never did the final paper, which would have given him a theological degree, because the war ended, and then de Gaulle came back in and appointed resistance leaders as municipal leaders uh, to help rebuild the country. And he was asked to help with the re- reconstruction of Bordeaux, his hometown. So anyway, all of his life, though, he worked with a local church, uh, a reformed church, as well as trying to work with the denomination he was very frustrated by that. He also worked with the World Council of Churches and basically walked away from that because he didn't think they were being biblical enough. He didn't think they were being 
insightful enough about the problems of society. So, you know, he's always kind of on the edge, but uh, wrote, you know, of his 50 or 60 books, I'd say half of them are theological books or biblical studies. He wrote Bible studies of on the book of Jonah, on Ecclesiastes, uh, you know, on uh, on the book of Revelation, on and then on topics like the meaning of the city throughout Scripture and money throughout Scripture. So he wrote a lot, and he was, you know, just a brilliant uh, biblical expositor. When you read his books, you're going to get a take on this. It's different from uh, any of the other standard expositions. And sometimes I just don't agree with what he, where he's going. And I think part of, part of it, he gets a little off track, I think, because he was isolated in that sense. He wasn't part of a faculty that held him accountable. Hmm. But I also went to uh, an intervarsity retreat with him, the uh, group Biblique Universitaire, you know, GBU, which is the intervarsity uh, thing over there. And I, I heard him preach in church and celebrate communion. I went to his Bible studies when I was over there on sabbatical for uh, a whole year one time and then several summers. Uh, and so I can just tell you, this is a man who loved God and who loved Jesus Christ and really wanted to be faithful. And and uh, so I, I just have the greatest respect for his spirituality, even though I disagree with him on some of his theological positions. All right. And he claims that both Karl Barth and Soren Kierkegaard were big influences on him. Uh, what, um, how does that show up? Well, Kierkegaard, you know, was, uh, lived, what, 18, 1833 to, I can't remember exactly, but he was he in died 1855. Yeah, 1855. Uh, Kierkegaard was a philosopher more than a theologian, but he passionate Christian. And if I could put it this way, Kierkegaard uh, was a major critic of modernity. That is the rationalistic thinking of the Enlightenment, which was creeping into the church big time in the uh, 19th century. Nietzsche uh, was also a critic of modernity. So you have these two giant figures one who are the main critics who brought down modernity and it led to post-modernity where, you know, we don't just completely believe that everything can be proved rationally, you know, this kind of thing, but there's a bigger space for faith or for, uh, you know, in the case of uh, Nietzsche is just, it's a, it's a kind of despair uh, that you can't really know anything, but for sure modernity can't, is not the answer. Uh, so but Kierkegaard did that, but from the standpoint of somebody who believes, who who has faith uh, in God. And so it's that, in, we could call that existentialist Christianity, because it puts a premium on your heart-to-heart relationship with God. Uh, you know, and he would, you know, his famous exposition of, of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham believed in God, even though God told him to do the unthinkable, the unethical, kill your son. But he believed that God would deliver him and that he wouldn't die. Or if he died, he'd rise again or something, you know. So it's this being suspended over 10,000 fathoms and still trusting in God. And so it's that kind of influence on Elul made him very uh, critical of any kind of philosophical systems 
rationalistic systems like John Locke and all the Descartes is kind of the worst of the worst in that sense. You know, I think, therefore I am, you know, this kind of thing. And so uh, Kierkegaard influenced him that way very much. And then Bart was influenced by Kierkegaard and Bart built on that to be the major critic of 19th century liberal theology, because 19th century liberal theology, by and large, academic theology, was submitting the Bible and all of our belief system to reason. So reason is is king, not God is king. And so uh, Kierkegaard challenged that, and Bart challenged that, and Bart single-handedly stood up to uh, the liberalism of the 19th century. So, and he was so biblically oriented. Now, you know, I don't agree with Bart on everything, but he's not an enemy. He's a friend of uh, believing Christianity like we have, you know, uh, and, and Alul's the same way. But Alul always felt that uh, he, he never studied with Bart. He met him one time, but he certainly mastered his voluminous writings. And uh, But he always felt that, that Bart didn't tease out the ethical and political implications of scripture as much as he could have. So, mm. uh, so we thought the theological biblical foundations are basically right on, but we need to move forward. All right. So if you could pick uh, maybe three major points of uh, Elul's theology, um, what would you do? What would you pick? How would you illustrate it? Well, I, I think, you know, it's pretty obvious, but he often says, the point of departure of my thought is scripture. The criterion of my thought is scripture. Uh, and that's what I want to do is just think, what does scripture mean? What does the Bible mean for our lives? He also says similar things about Jesus Christ. He says, uh, the center of everything is Jesus Christ. He is God in human flesh, and he's at the center of everything. Uh, so uh, one of the other things that I I love about Elul is, he, in his writings, he often says, uh, you know, when we have questions about our faith, it's appropriate to bring those questions to Scripture, bring those questions to Jesus Christ. But it's more important to come to Scripture and hear God's questions for us. Like for, uh, for, it, for Jesus Christ to say, who do you say that I am? You know, who do people say that mm-hmm. I am? But then Jesus confronts us and says, who do you say that I am? So, and, and he would say in the Garden of Eden, where are you when they were hiding? What have you done? Who told you? Uh, and to Cain, where is your brother? And so it's those kinds of things, but it's, it's the implicit questions as well. As well. It's like uh, when, when Jesus heals somebody, we ought to let that question us and say, do I do things that contribute to people's health uh, in the world, or am I contributing through my work and my business toward disease and death in the world? And, it, you know, just letting Scripture challenge us that way. So, I mean, I think those are important. And let me just say a couple of things that I, well, here's another thing that I find really good is, is Elul is very eschatologically oriented. He really believes we're moving toward uh, the second coming of Christ, you know, and he thinks that ought to guide our behavior. And I really strongly believe that and write about that myself all the time, that, you know, the Bible, as Paul says in Romans 13, he says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us, therefore, 
lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk, let us live as in the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the coming kingdom of God should guide our work. Well, a lot of that is a Lowell's influence on me to see those themes in scripture that, that the coming, the promise of the second coming of Christ is not just something to save our sorry selves out of this world, but it should inspire us in how we live right now. It should inspire us. Uh, if one day we're going to sit at table, people will come from east and west and north and south and sit at table in the kingdom of God. Well, that's the coming day. No, we ought to do that now and bring people from east and west and north and south to sit at table, to sit at our table. One day we're going to uh, beat our swords and plow, plow our, our swords and spears into plowshares uh, and pruning hooks. That's that's what God wants. And so today, I want to try to overcome violence in the streets of Oakland with job creation. Now, it's never the kingdom of God, precisely, that we're doing, but we're leaning toward that. There's coming a day when all tears will be wiped away from people's eyes. So I want to live now and wipe right. tears away from you get what I'm saying. So it's that eschatological thrust. Uh, he also has this scheme where he says a lot of times things that happen in man's rebellion against God, God adopts, purifies, and then and then adopts into and, and turns into his own. So for example, uh, uh, Cain, sin, Cain sins, commits murder and all this, and he's supposed to be a vagabond and a wanderer. Instead, his descendants go out and build a city. And so the history of the city is is, uh, is Cain's and Lamech's rebellion, then it's the Tower of Babel, it's Babylon. Meanwhile, God comes alongside, and you see the promise of this, the cities of Melchizedek, who comes out from Salem, peace, and brings bread and wine. And then you see how God establishes Jerusalem as a promise. In the future, Babylon is the grand symbol of everything that's evil, and it's condemned. But the the new the the new world is not uh, the new Eden. It's the new Jerusalem. So God has taken something that originated negatively, purified mm-hmm. it. Same thing you could say about kingship. God did not right. want them to have a king, but they do. He purifies it, and then he becomes the true king of kings. So I like that. Two things I don't like. Number one, uh, there's some details I could talk about. I don't think Alul's theology of work is uh is correct he sees too much the negative curse side of work and doesn't see how work he he has a way of explaining it away but i really believe work originates in uh the garden of eden you know in god's commission to adam and eve to care for it and all this another thing is is uh elul is a a universalist right uh he wasn't always talking this way but he and the way he basically would talk about it is to say, I don't teach this, but I have to say, I do believe this is what's going to happen. And he, and he says uh, he, he makes a difference between judgment and condemnation. He thinks we'll all be judged and our work will be the wood and stubble will be uh, burned up and God will decide what's gold and silver and all this. But he he believes that will happen to everyone, and that Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world, which, of course, the New Testament says. But he he doesn't believe uh, 
in, in he, everyone is condemned in he, Jesus Christ bore the condemnation. Well, I've argued with him about this, and I said, you know, I believe in a universal atonement too, but I also believe God respects people's decisions, and you've taught that a lot, Mr. Lul. But, you know, I think if people say, I don't want God, I don't want God, uh, God's going to give them their wish in the end. And and I talked to him about Hitler too, and I said, are you saying that Hitler could be in heaven? Is that what you're saying? And he, and, and I said, it sounds to me like what you're saying is Hitler might be in heaven, but he would be a fly on the wall of heaven, not a, you know, there's so little that's redeemable in Hitler, but but anyway, so I'm just saying I don't agree with everything. And but he was the most loving, wonderful guy, and he loved it that I would push back and argue with him. So he said, "I don't want to create a cult. I don't want a following. Uh, I don't want a school of thought of Alulians. What I want to do is p- provide people with some of the resources for thinking through for themselves their theology and their presence in the world." All right. So one of his main books uh, was The Presence of the Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, What stands out to you in that book is noteworthy? Well, the new edition of this book is gives it the original French title, Presence in the Modern World. And uh, it's a new translation at Whippenstock Publishers there in Eugene, Oregon. And if you go to elul.org, you can find more information about these books and how to order them. But Whippenstock has been reprinting and in some cases retranslating or translating for the first time uh, a lot of Alul's books. But this book has two chapters in the beginning. It's a small book. It's one that I recommend to everybody. I probably assigned it in every Christian ethics course I taught for 40 years because it was just a different kind of perspective that many Christians were not going to get otherwise. But I, I found it just powerful going all the way back to, you know, the late 60s when I read it for the first time at Berkeley. But his first two chapters are on the Christian in the world and revolutionary Christianity. And he really he really helps us see how we're not to be conformed to this world, no matter where we live, no matter how Christian your community is. We are not to be conformed to this world. We're, we are ambassadors from another country. You know, he uses that illustration a lot. We're, we're ambassadors from another country. We obey the values and the agenda of our king, even in France or in the United States. And yeah, we want to be constructive citizens here. We're not just going to be cranks, you know, not helping out. We want to be good ambassadors. So we need to speak the language and have a positive impact. But we are here to fulfill the agenda. And he talks about being salt and light and these kinds of things. Well, I love that, those first two chapters. Then he has two chapters on what he sees as the two major problems that we're up against. And one of them is this business of technology, or he prefers to talk about technique because uh, the in the history of the language, and he's writing in French, of course, uh, technology is really, you know, technique plus logos, just like biology is the, the ology of bio. So it's the study of life. Theology is the study of God. And so technology initially is the study of techniques, meaning uh, ways of making things, ways of doing things. So it's, it's skill. Techniques are skills, and they're uh, ways of making and doing things. And, uh, but technology has, has grown into this massive, integrated uh, phenomenon 
that dominates our societies. Because way back when, when people made houses or they made shoes or they cooked or whatever, they a lot of times were following local tradition or when they worked, they would follow religious tradition so they would not work on Sunday, for example, or on the Sabbath or something. So we had we had social and religious traditions, faith traditions that guided what we would do and how we would make things. Uh, the ancient Israelites would let, let their fields lie fallow. Uh, but now all agriculture is done on a scientific basis, you know, and and all of our work is is uh, subject to technological guidance, and and we can we can hardly unplug ever. And it's not that that is valuable in a lot of you know modern medicine is very helpful in a lot of ways, but at the same time it it excludes things like prayer uh, and the mysterious. And it it it's in, if we only evaluate our employees based on their quantifiable productivity we're missing out on things that cannot be measured. And even, you know, a great scientist like uh, Einstein said, all that, all that uh, counts in life cannot be counted. And all that can be counted does not necessarily count in that kind of play of words. And so Elul is really fighting against that. So he has a chapter in the presence of the kingdom called the means and the end, or the end and the means. And that's really what's, what it's all about is we live in a world where everything is about means. It's about how, how to do something in a more efficient way, how to move faster, how to move more efficiently. But we lose sight of the ends, and, and the means proliferating more technologies becomes an end in itself. If it can be done, it will be done. Where do you create boundaries you know, around that? So it's a, it's a powerful chapter on technique. Later on, he wrote the his most famous book is called The Technological Society, uh, where he expands into 400 pages what he wrote 30 pages on in the presence of the kingdom. And then the next chapter is the problem of communication, in which he's talking about the proliferation of messages in our society and the way communication, we have a hard time communicating truth, agreeing on things. And when you're being bombarded by advertising and news bites and things like that all the time, how do you figure out what's true? Uh, and so that's where the propaganda propaganda is about communication techniques. Uh, and, uh, and and he, he argues that in this chapter that when people are bombarded by thousands of messages, which we are every day, everywhere we look, and it's just constantly bombarded, how do we figure out, uh, how do we make sense of it? And he says, that's when we resort to what are called explanatory myths. Hmm. So there's like, he, he talks about the myth of, of uh, you know, the Rothschilds and the, and the Jewish cabal kind of running everything, or the, the myth of capitalists or the myth, the myth, communism becomes a kind of myth. So everything that we don't like, we say, oh, it's that socialists, those socialists. It, they're not necessarily socialist, but it's our—it's an explanatory myth. Or everything's the fault of Fox News, you know. Or everything is those liberal, liberals, you know. So we we create these explanatory myths because we have no other way of kind of weighing different opinions and considering our experience. And that's where you know Christianity is—it's a myth in that sense, not in the sense that it's not true. But this is the one true uh, worldview. Right. story. And so our weakness is that we 
we're biblically illiterate. We, we don't have that biblical worldview. So his chapter on the problem of communication is, is really fabulous. And then the last chapter is just saying, if we're going to make any progress, it's got to be a difference in the way we think, but it's got to be shown in the difference of our lifestyle. We have to live our faith and our convictions. So that's kind of the, the presence. And, and uh, I still think it's a brilliant book. For sure. So in the humiliation of the word, what is he getting at? He's uh, comparing what, what is seen and what is heard. Uh, what exactly is, how is the word being humiliated? What is he getting at in that book? Well, what he's, he's mainly arguing in the humiliation of the word is that we live in a society of images, um, pictures, you know, and uh, everything from movies to photos to television, and we're just inundated by visual images. Not even, uh, you know, it's one thing to look at a mountain or look at people. It's another thing to be inundated by images of people. And so, yeah, it's a lot better. I mean, here you and I are talking uh, and we're actually seeing each other. It is it is one step away from a face-to-face meeting, but still, we can see each other's facial expressions. And, you know, there's quite a bit more in this context than there is just seeing pictures. Uh, and this is this is better than a phone call in a lot of respects, too, you know. But, but uh, yeah, the humiliation of the word is just arguing how uh, people are less and less learning through listening to each other and conversation and... Uh, so already by reducing things to reading, that's something less dynamic than interaction. You know, for before the invention of printing, people did learn by listening to sermons and listening to talks and memorizing things. And But still, reading, writing and reading bring huge advantages and broader diffusion of knowledge and this kind of thing. So none of these things are all bad. We're all good. What Alul is mostly wanting us to do is to see that things are ambivalent. There's always a, a trade-off uh, in these things that we, these technologies that we accept. But anyway, we live in a world where the visual and the images are triumphant and the word is humiliated in a sense. It's not, it's not as powerful. And when it is used, it tends to be cliches and, and not thoughtful, contentful sentences. I think he's right. And in uh, the subversion, the subversion of Christianity, he talks about uh, sacralization, desacralization. Uh, what is he getting at with that? Well, he, the subversion of Christianity is kind of a broad sweeping uh, history of Christianity since the first century, in which he talks about how that vital Christian faith of the first couple centuries got undermined. And so, first of all, it got undermined by its being wedded to the political administration of the Roman Empire. So, prior to the conversion of Constantine, uh, the Christian faith was one of servanthood across society. But when it became the official religion, then to be a leader in the church became a position of power and privilege and sometimes wealth, and it began to corrupt the church. And pretty soon, you know, you've got uh, the heretics are considered to be heretics in North Africa, the Donatists. It's compelled them to come in. And so there begins persecution of people whose theology differs from 
the official line. And so that was a subversion of Christianity. So there's there's protection. You're not being thrown to the lions anymore, which is good. But on the other hand, you now are, uh, you know, account answerable to the powers that control the bishops and things like that. And so it begins to undermine. And then the impact with Islam in the Middle Ages uh, after the seventh century, he felt like that uh, actually inspired the Christians to to have their crusades because Islam was a kind of crusading religion. Uh, he felt like some of Islam's attitudes towards women infected Christian attitudes towards women. I mean, it's not it's not the, something we can blame them entirely or anything like that. Um, but anyway, he he just has a whole series of of chapters there about how different cultural uh, phenomena and movements have undermined, subverted the Christian faith. Now, the the place where he he uh, uh, you know, talks about that sacralization thing is really in a book called the the New Demons. Uh, the New Demons, or it's in French, it's the New Possessors. You know, like somebody was possessed by a demon. So the New Possessors. But in there, he argues that uh, you know many people today in the second half of the twentieth century believe that we're becoming more and more secularized, and he argues. Actually, we're not. We're more religious than ever. It's just that what we're worshiping is uh, money, and we're worshiping the state, you know, and the state calls for our worship, and political leaders become almost cult figures, you know, where people are uncritically following them and believing them no matter what. We've seen examples of this recently, and, and this happens you know, around the world with authoritarian leaders. So it's not that China is secular it's that their their religion is to worship uh, Xi Jinping and to worship the state and and uh, they don't have the Bible you know as a whole but they have Mao's red book and you know this kind of things and uh, uh, and, and so he argues that it's worshiping technique you know this kind of technological rationality technology and worshiping the nation state is the other great mm. pole so those are the two great poles of the sacred. And then he points out that actually it's kind of ironic that in the centers of secular thinking, university towns, you still find all over the place people are advertising that they'll read read their tarot cards and, and uh, there are palm readers and all this kind of stuff. So the craziest spiritualistic nonsense actually finds a good home right where those uh, supposedly secular uh, bastions of thought are. So... So, I mean, that's his book on the sociology of religion, uh, just like his book on propaganda and, and to some extent, humiliation. Where This is his kind of sociology of communications. And he's got a book called uh, The Empire of Nonsense, L'Empire de Nonsense, uh, which is about art, art and music in a technological society. So his books kind of run over those various uh, topics. Uh, and then he's got parallel to that, all these books on biblical topics where you kind of see another way of looking at the world. So in uh, Subversion of Christianity, his last chapter is on dominions and powers. How would you describe his theology of the principalities and power, powers, dominions, etc.? Well, again, he's not, he's not a secular thinker. So he, he has read all the secular thinkers, but he, he believes there's more than just what meets the eye and can be measured. And so he believes the Bible talks about this 
that there are principalities and powers, there are demonic forces, and he he doesn't he, he doesn't come down uh, with uh, you know what you might call a, sci- a, 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 a science fictional kind of spooky thing, but he says you can't deny that either that there may be some uh, you know personalized spiritual forces who are attacking. But what there is is there's something more than just uh, political institutions. There is a power, uh, and that's what Paul gets at in Ephesians. You know, your struggle is not just against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so, you know, there are other sociologists like Max Weber and others who argue that, you know, an, an institution is more than just the things you can see and measure. There, There's a kind of collective spiritual reality almost that, that uh, institutions and movements can have. And so I think what is his point really is that we should not just take a very narrow, secularized view of what we're up against. We need to pray about it. And we need to see that it's, it's more than just some evil politician choosing to do something wrong, but they are being influenced by these kind of powers that exist in the uh, institution. All right. So let's move on to his political thought. Um, He called himself an anarchist. Um, He talks about looking forward to a revolution. Um, He talks a lot about violence and nonviolence. So uh, before we dive into more specific things in a couple of the books, how overall, how would you describe his thought? What's key there? Well, he's, he's, uh, you know, he he read a lot of Karl Marx when he was uh, in university, and he read all of it, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. And uh, he believed it really explained uh, the depression and his own father's loss of his job and things like that. Okay. The, the capitalism uh, and and uh, you know the distribution of wealth uh, was to blame, you know, for the depression. Uh, the kind of roaring 20s explosion of unrestricted, unregulated capitalism led to a big economic collapse and unemployment and all that. But he he says he never actually became a Marxist because, first of all, the Marxist groups that he ran into uh, didn't live didn't live by Marxist principles. So they they may talk about how all property belongs to all the people, but they live lives <laughs> of privilege. And he just couldn't take that. He said, you know, this is ridiculous. You have all these wealthy Parisian intellectuals, privileged intellectuals who think they're Marxists, but they have nothing to do with the proletariat, you know. <laughs> so that was one thing. But another thing is he thought he, he thought that Marx's analysis was generally valid for the 19th century. But in the 20th century, it was not the ownership of the means of production that drove everything. It was not capital, but it was technique. Right. Uh, and so... He's similar to Marx as a sociologist in the sense that he's looking for a kind of uh, a global kind of philosophy of society, you might say. He's, he's, he defines a worldview through which you look, a lens through which you look at social phenomena and say, does this account for this and this and this? Does this make sense? Can we live with this? Is it consistent? Whereas in, in uh, American sociology, 
American sociology tends to work from the ground up through statistical studies. So it'll do a statistical study on uh, homelessness or unemployment and work from statistics up to generalizations. Whereas the way Marx and Max Weber, uh, Emile Durkheim, the great sociologists in Alul, the way European sociologists basically work is by more by studying as much as possible, but then creating a kind of broad ranging picture of, of uh, reality and then saying, try this on. Does this explain things, you know? And, uh, and of course the statistics are important at a certain level, but, uh, but anyway, so that's his early encounter, but he decided, he says decisively for Christ when he had to decide, should I be a Christian or a Marxist? He said, I'm going to follow Christ, but he always taught courses on Marx, learned from Marx, but he believed that actually in the 20th century, the conflict between uh, democracy and communism or between the left and the right was much less important than the growth of the nation state and its dominance by bureaucracy and technical mm. bureaus. That was really uh, the same, really, in, Rus- in Russia and China and the United States and Italy, all over the world. It's the growth of that kind of a, a bureaucratic, rational, administrative state. Uh, whether you're in the United States or in uh, Poland or wherever, and uh, so he tended to uh, really always stay focused on the growth of state power, which sometimes makes him sound like he's a libertarian. You know, he's a he's a conservative and libertarian because he doesn't want to see the state take over all of life. But the other side is he doesn't want to see powerful corporations take over either. And that's where a lot of times libertarians and conservative Christians included, they tend to say, well, let, let Amazon rule the world. It doesn't matter if, uh, if Jeff Bezos owns everything uh, and exploits workers. That's just the invisible hand of the market. Well, Elul believes that the principalities and powers can be just as powerful through corporations or for that matter, through church bureaucracies. Uh, so it's it's institutional size and power and dynamics that we need to fight against. So he argued that trying to reform uh, the nation state, the things he'd been involved in, he thought were basically uh, ineffective. You know, And so he argued that we really need a strategic anarchism. But he was absolutely nonviolent. He didn't believe in uh, in a violent revolution. Uh, he wasn't a pacifist, quite because he, but he didn't believe in, anybody should ever engage in violence, and attribute that to Christ. He, because he didn't think Jesus would lead us ever to kill somebody else. But he he did think that sometimes we will participate in war, uh, but we should not blame that on. On Christ, we should say. Wait, wait. So, how is he distinguishing that? Could you go into more detail? How does he distinguish between promoting nonviolence on the one hand, but not actually being a full-on pacifist? Yeah. Well, he. What I mean by what I meant by that, especially, was in talking about anarchism. He doesn't believe in an anarchist revolution, like you know. Sometimes you, we hear Portland and Berkeley and all that about Antifa, you know, where you've got these anarchists who jump in behind a Black Lives Matter march or something and begin just 
try to create disorder in the streets or in the society. And he, he doesn't believe that we should do that. He believes in, in refusing to cooperate with the state sometimes, but he wouldn't believe in charging into the American capital or something like that and destroying property, He'd believe in refusing to work or something like that, you know, but, uh, so he's he's nonviolent in that sense is what I'm trying to say. He's not promoting violence and anarchism. And that's so easy for people who are not used to reading this and thinking this kind of thing to think that, oh, he's he's an anarchist. Well, he's like Antifa or something like that, but he's not. Uh, he believed in resisting the growth and the power of the state, but not by bombing the uh, the Capitol building, is, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But uh so that's really his, and he makes this point and he says, I'm not an anarchist because I believe in the perfectibility of human beings. I don't. Actually, he says it's a strategic anarchism in the sense that at this time in history, we have so much, uh, su- such a repressive state uh, apparatus that the only serious thing is to refuse it, to stand up against it. But I think, you know, it's not so simple as all of that, actually. And the reality is that there is a lot of disorder in society on our streets. And so there has to be support for some kind of authority, some kind of uh, collective response to uh, urban disorder and this kind of thing. On the other hand, we don't want the state to take over all aspects of our education and our life either. So he's got some important, important points, I think, to make about resisting the growth of the state, while at the same time, I think he fails to appreciate enough how the the good things that the state can do. Well, then, if he was looking forward to a revolution, which I know he he said, I was naive in expecting that there'd be a revolution in France after World War II. And uh, so what would, if if a revolution was attained, what would it look like? And how can you be an anarchist when you a country needs to be run. Yeah, well, he, something new. Yeah, it, it's there's a. By the way, we had a. Where is this here? We had a conference at Berkeley, uh, 2016. I don't know if you can see this. Political illusion and reality engaging the prophetic insights of Jacques Ellul, uh, and this was a conference we did with that title at Berkeley, my alma mater, in the middle of the campus. Uh, the Alul Society, the International Jacques Alul Society, we sponsor a conference every two years. So actually coming up this summer, it's in Montreal on the arts and music in a technological society. In uh, 2024, God willing, it's going to be in Chicago, uh, the 70th anniversary of the publication of uh, of the technological society. And we're going to ask, is the critique still valid and this kind of thing? Uh, 20. 18, we had a conference at Regent College in Vancouver, B.C., on the Bible and the thought of Jacques Ellul. But anyway, his his argument, he's written three books, actually, with the, with the word revolution in it, Autopsy of Revolution, From Revolution to Revolt. And he basically argues there is no revolution possible. So, yes, Christians ought to live in a revolutionary way in the sense that I am here, but I'm living in obedience to my sovereign who is Jesus Christ. And so that creates a kind of revolutionary context, in a sense, even though it's a peaceful uh, conflict. But he argues that if there is a revolution today, it's got to be a revolution that is a a reaction against the rule of technique, 
So it's it's not a political revolution. It's a it's a technological revolution, a, a refusal to let technology dominate our lives and our thinking and our value system. So he was not working for a particular type of government, a way no. of re- redoing government? No. Okay. Well, what is um, what was his thought on Romans 13? Yeah, I, I'm trying to... I, I, did, I haven't heard him actually think or write about that. I think, uh, you know, obviously he believes God will use, God does use the structures and uh, authorities of this world. Uh, and so we should recognize that. But I, and, and I'm not sure, you know, my way of dealing with this is actually is part of the reform tradition, although it hasn't always been uh, retained. But my argument is that uh, Romans 13 is a normative definition of God-approved state power and not a positivist one. And, uh, you know, in other words, when it says the powers that be are ordered uh, by God, ordained by God, and they bear the sword to punish what is wrong and to be in praise of what is good. So, I say what when the Bible uses those terms good and evil if you just it's it's continuous with the argument in Romans 12 about overcoming uh, evil with good and this kind of thing there's no change there so the point is that any uh government that bears the sword and is not punishing evil in the eyes of God and not praising what is actually good is not a legitimate government it's it's not a government uh, that is ordained by God. So God ordains governments insofar as they punish evil and praise what is good. And so in that sense, it's a norm rather than a description of all. Ex- it's not like we should say, well, even though we can't figure out how, uh, you know, uh, you know, Hitler was an instrument praising good and punishing evil. No, I don't believe that. Well, believe yet that. Paul probably wrote that at the time of Nero when yeah. he was there, incredible persecution of the Christians, yeah. and he's saying but he doesn't, he doesn't you know, pay say, taxes. Doesn't actually say that's uh, what he's how to apply it, but but yeah, you I, I understand that. And then there are people who say that actually, you know, John is writing Revelation, and Babylon is really a reference to Rome at that time. Right. So, but anyway, as far as Alol is concerned. Uh, you know, his view of politics was pretty negative. And he, he really thought Babylon is uh, in the domain of Satan, you know. And I wrote a, a chapter in this, my chapter in this book is is on his theology, of his political theology. And I analyze these different places where he talks about politics in the Bible and how that applies today. And it's pretty, it's pretty grim. I think, I think it's too negative, actually. So could you be more specific in um, what, what he says about actual government, how it's structured, how it's run, how it functions? He says that the Bible doesn't actually specify any particular form of government. So, you know, there's a lot of monarchy in there but, and, and then the rule of the judges and things like that. And uh, But he says when you look at, he, he wrote a little book called The Politics of God and the Politics of Man, which was really a Bible study of second Kings. And he goes through these stories to show that God uses uh, 
you know, something other than political strategy and wisdom to confound uh, the ordinary thinking. And so he talks about, you know, how Hezekiah is uh, threatened by Sennacherib or whoever it was, and how despite his best efforts, you know, he's he's about to be invaded and he takes this letter of threat and goes into the temple and lays it out and weeps and prays before God and God delivers him. But, uh, and, and how, uh, you know, Naaman the leper is cured. Uh, here's this great political leader, uh, but he actually finds cure through this, the witness of this little young maid, you know, basically. And so it's all about the, the, uh, the ineffectiveness of ordinary politics and the importance of being faithful and relying on God. Uh, he has written, you know, in his books on uh, on ethics, the ethics of freedom. He does have, you know, things where he he encourages, uh, for example, and he he think he has a little thing on dialogue with the sovereign. He thinks it's much better to go talk to actual people uh, who are running. Uh, school boards or whatever, instead of trying to propagandize them through, through movements or slogans or things like that. So there are some mm. things that he suggests, and he he says, "Look, we can't have a society without having these basic things of garbage collection and supervising traffic on our roads and things like that." And if Christians are are in those uh, jobs, we ought to do a good job. We ought to do a good job. We shouldn't just say, oh, that's unimportant because, you know, God is, you know, these are corrupt institutions. No, we should do a good job there. So so would he be comfortable with Christians holding higher positions in government, governors, mayors, even presidents, yeah. heads of state? Yeah, I think he would. I think he would say it's not worth pursuing those positions. But he, he also would say, look, that's just my opinion. I, I, I've. He would just say, I'm not saying nobody else should do that. I'm just saying, I don't think that as a, as a church, I don't think we should think that's more important than being a, uh, you know, a baker in a bakery down the street or something. You know, so, does he, anybody. so does he address the use of violence in that case if a head of a state is? Um... No, no. I mean, he his his stance, like, for example, in Algeria, there was terrible violence in the 50s, you know, as Algeria was trying to become independent. And Elul was very critical of of uh, the French intellectuals and, and leaders, for that matter, for not having thought ahead and addressed situations while they were still fluid. But at a certain point, after the conflict begins and the violence begins, uh, positions harden, and it becomes very difficult to disengage from that and then then at that very moment christians stand up and say we should make peace and we should you know but it, by that time it's too late in a sense so he argues christians should the role we should play is as the watchman on the wall of ezekiel you know we should try to help our society see coming events coming down the pike and uh you know and alert our neighbors and our church and everything else all right, so he talks about the Bible as a source of anarchy. He talks about, uh, well, Jesus, of course, in the book of Revelation, First Peter, the Apostle Paul. How does he find um, a basis for anarchy in the scriptures? 
Well, he, what he's saying is, uh, you know, Jesus is talking about another kingdom, and he uh, he's teaching another way and another loyalty. And so he's, you know, the, the word anarchy is really the archy uh, there, uh, like an architecture, you know, are the structures. And so it's it's resisting the structures, you might say, resisting the powers. And so he does that by his style of life and by his message. All right. And in Autopsy of Revolution, so the, the title right there is, you know, the basic idea that revolution is dead. Yes. And we're examining why it died. So how does that title tie into his well, thought what on revolution? Yeah, what he argues is that revolution suggests a complete, you know, roll over into a new era. But what he argues is that uh, revolutions since, really since the United, the American Revolution and the French Revolution, Russian Revolution, uh, those had pretty decisive consequences. But now what happens with revolutions is there may be an appearance of major change, but what it really is, it's reinforcing the power's that were there already. Uh, and so it, it reinforces bureaucracy. It reinforces technique, the rule of technique. Uh, I, I think he's, I think he's uh, overstates it there because I think there are massive consequences to some of these changes in political leadership. But, uh, you know, I, I, I still, I understand what he was saying is that the revolution that we need, he, has a chapter at the end of autopsy called the necessary revolution. And he's really talking about a revolution in this whole business of ends and means and technique. And I mean, when you look at how Amazon and, uh, and our, you look, just look at kids everywhere, everybody looking at their, their screens when they're walking down the street, when they're sitting everywhere and they can't leave them off for more than, you know, 30 seconds without checking again, we are ruled by our technological devices and our technologies connect us to everybody else. And so somebody could hack us from the other side of the world or hack our power systems or uh, our banking systems. I mean, there's of course the advantage of an ATM in Paris where I can pull out euros and not have to go to a, an American express office or something. So there are advantages. That's why this it's good. That's why we get this stuff, but it's not absolutely good so that we should just, have an, give it an unlimited carte blanche to take over our lives. And every time Apple has a new iPhone, we automatically have to upgrade because it will never end. It just continues. It invades more parts of our life. There are more applications that will address uh, more things. I've been trying the last uh, two days to get an airline ticket to uh, England. I can't get through to British Airways or to American Airlines to figure out how to use some miles from my American Airlines account on this British Airways. I have some questions, but there are no people. There are just robots and machines. Uh, they've laid all the people off. And so you can't, and, and the networks are just, you know, unending menus. You know, one menu leads to another menu, leads to another. And finally you get hung up on, uh, it, it's the whole world is layered with this network of technology and it disrupts personal relationships. Yeah, it, it 
it enables what you and I are doing. It enables me to stay in touch with 15 other of my former students on Facebook. And those are all positives. But on the other hand, it also enables me to stay detached. Uh, I mean, I could just stay in my house and my property and in my little car, you know, by myself all the time. Uh, because the technology invites that kind of impersonal detachment in that sense. And so that's that's what he argues, is that the world is being enclosed in this uh, the system, the technological system and network. Uh, and you can't extract yourself from that, except in a very uh, limited way. You could maybe go off like the Unabomber and live up in the mountains somewhere, but... But it, it's a it's a really important critique, I think, you know, and I uh, but on the other hand, he he would say uh, you have to respond in your own personal lifestyle. And, you know, and he would urge urge us to really try to revitalize our churches through a lot of personal relationships and limit the technology in our churches so we don't just have a bunch of uh smoke machines and, you know, audio visual light flashes around and, you know, just letting the kind of technology dominate our worship. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a challenging critique that he, he presents. So he also writes a lot about uh, propaganda is very famous for that in his uh, book, propaganda, what um, would you say is uh, most crucial for us to understand well, propaganda, you know, I'm. this is probably the part of his thought that I know least. Uh, but, you know, I've read his stuff and the humiliation of the word. And propaganda is basically techniques of mass persuasion. And one of his, uh, you know, he talks a lot about Goebbels and Hitler and all that. But a lot of what propaganda, sometimes we think propaganda is how you twist people's minds into believing something other than what they know to be true. But Elul argues that most propaganda actually is mobilizing people to act on something that they think is true or wish was true. And so it works on our already existing prejudices and whips those up in certain ways. So, you know, in the United States, we've got, you know, this terrible partisan uh, politics where, uh, you know, the left and the right are, you know, it's almost impossible to have a conversation but it's not that propaganda uh, teaches Republicans or Democrats to believe in lies so much as it it grabs onto and mobilizes us to a fever pitch on some aspect of what we really believe to be true. But it obscures other things that we ought to accept. And so, you know, I, I certainly see that. My friends, I'm, I'm not a Trumpite myself, but I have a lot of friends who, you know, are they're faithful to Trump's thought and it's, they're not bad people, but they've been whipped up and propagandized into adherence and action. You might say political action on the basis of some kernel of, of, of truth, you might say in their existence. And then on the other hand, the Democrats, I've, you know, as you know, I live in Oakland and I'm a Berkeley boy. So I've always been a believer and a, advocate for Jesus Christ right here in blue territory. So I understand the language <laughs> and also the mistakes. But anyway, on this side, you know, you, you just see people 
will be propagandized into believing that you don't believe in women and in, in women's power if you don't give them an absolute right to abort their children all the way to the end. You know, it, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a very important point that I share of giving women power, empowerment over their own bodies. But if you propagandize that point, it can blind you to other things that ought to set boundaries over that uh, I am my own master of my body kind of thought, you know. And so right. propaganda is, is, the, is the proliferation of techniques to mobilize people to act on something that they're already committed to. So he talks about the state's necessity for propaganda, but also the individuals. Why does the individual need propaganda? Yeah, I think the state is constantly needing to justify itself, and it's it's building its political base and this kind of thing. Okay, persuading people to support it. So that's that's that side. The individual though has it's this it's this explanatory myth thing that he started talking about in Presence of the Kingdom that people need to be provided with justifications. You know, they need, hmm. they need arguments. They need to be, uh, we, we need to have confidence in what we, what we're committed to and our ideas and our values. And so we, we have a need for propaganda in that sense. So for in, an individual that's not able to get a good job may need a scapegoat. Yeah. A I different group of people that yeah. are taking their jobs. Yeah. And so, yeah. Okay, and he also talks about psychological effects of propaganda, psychological crystallization, alienation, psychic dissociation. What is he getting at with those? <laughs> I can't really go into uh, details like that. I mean, I, I, like I said, I think he feels that individual human beings, we have a need for explanation, justification, to have our emotional life uh, caught up and in our commitments as well. And so that's where the, the psychology of it all fits in, I believe. But, you know, he, he's written at length. Uh, there, he, he wrote a book on the history of propaganda, a little book. And then he also has the big, uh, the fatter thing called propaganda, the formation of people's attitudes, it's called. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of, uh, we actually had a conference in Ottawa on communication and propaganda back in 2014. So, but you know, the, the, our, the, uh, our website, alul.org, uh, there are some essays on, and also you can find access to our journal, the Alul forum, where there will be essays where people smarter than me on this topic have written about his views of propaganda and communications there. Uh, there's a, a group called the Media Ecology Association that grew out of the work of Neil Postman. I don't know if you know that guy's name, but Neil Postman was uh, inspired a lot by Jacques Ellul's uh, thinking and was a professor of communications at New York University, died a couple years ago, a few years ago. But he wrote some really important things on, on communication and on technology, a book called Technopoly. And... Uh, and, and so there's a whole school of thought that's inspired by Elul and Postman and Ivan Illich and, and others. And they write about this, this a lot. Finally, what do you think uh, the church can, if you can sum up, how can we apply the teachings, the writings, the thought of Elul for the church, the Western church especially today? 
Well, you know, I, I've often said uh, that Jacques Ellul was a prophet to the intellectuals, not a prophet to the masses. So he, he also, he wrote so much, you know, and, and so he would have probably benefited by writing half as much and taking twice as much time to be sure that he was speaking clearly. And he, he, there's a certain repetitiousness of some of his, in some of his writing. And it, he also said a couple of times, I didn't, I didn't write 38 books. I remember that one time, but he would say, I didn't write 50 books. I wrote one book with 50 chapters. And what he meant by that was this is a, uh, this is an architecture of thinking through where are we uh, on the one hand, what is going on in the world? How do we understand what's happening in our society and our world? And on the other hand, what is God doing? And what is God trying to say to us? So those are the two big questions, you know, and how do those things come together? And you can't just have a, a kind of a half of one and half of the other and you put them together. No, you have all of the sociology analysis and all of the theological listening to the word. And it comes together in our life and in our community where we grapple with what does God want us to do in light of these things, you know, and in light of where we are. Uh, and so, but I, but I've said he's, he was a prophet to the intellectuals because it's just too much to expect uh, the people in our churches. I mean, yes, I've, I've had a lot of people read uh, presence of the kingdom and I think it's a good thing actually to use for, uh, you know, it's study adult study in a church, but, uh, and, and, but, you know, I'm going to do a study of Ecclesiastes for in my adult education thing in my church where I go. But I'm not going to use his book on Ecclesiastes because it's just too demanding in a sense. You need to have read some other things. It's not that people aren't smart enough. <clears throat> They're plenty smart enough, but they don't have enough time and enough to acquire the background to understand his references to other things. And so it takes people who are kind of mediators. And I, I actually feel like that's that's what I do. I, I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not trying to be unduly modest, but I've written a lot of books. But I don't view myself as kind of a cutting edge scholar like Jacques Ellul. I'm a mediator between Ellul and Bart and Kierkegaard and a whole lot of other people and the people, because I I want, but I want to be able to explain it to the people, the kids in our churches and things like that. Why we should not just adopt all the new technological devices and toys that we can get. Why we should not necessarily invest our money to the max in the highest tech Tesla that's available today. Uh, but, you know, I also do think we ought to reduce our dependence on gas and oil and things like that. So maybe there is a place for Tesla. But I'm just saying, I, I think we need to we need to translate his his thought. And if there are two things to be said, one of them is, to really uh, ask questions, question technology, and question not just the devices and machines, but in our lives, but also question that technological way of thinking that is always asking, what is the payoff? Where is the measurable, quantifiable thing? So a church is not necessarily better just because it's got more people coming to it or more, more money. There are other value considerations, faithfulness, not just effectiveness. So it's it's uh, resisting technology and embracing 
of the Word of God in Scripture. I think that's what would make uh, Elul happiest, and certainly that's what I believe uh, are the most important things. All right, good words. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. Uh, we've been taking a look at the thought of Jacques Ellul with Dr. David Gill. So, Dr. Gill, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It was great to be with you. Check out books by David Gill and Jacques Ellul by following the links below. There is also a link to the International Jacques Ellul Society. Be sure to look at other videos from The Charge and don't forget to click like and hit subscribe.